This episode of Motley Fool Answers is brought to you by Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. When it comes to the big decision of choosing a mortgage lender, work with one that has your best interests in mind. Use Rocket Mortgage for a transparent, trustworthy home loan process that's completely online at quickenloans.com. This is Motley Fool Answers. I'm Allison Southwick, and I'm joined, as always, by Robert Brokamp, personal finance expert here at The Motley Fool. He's also the advisor on Motley Fool's Rule Your Retirement newsletter. <laughs> Hi, Allison. People don't get to see the faces that you make as I do that spiel of introducing you. I know it's uncomfortable. You're talking about me. No, it's all true. <laughs> it is true, I guess. All right. So, we've been talking a lot about love and relationships this month, being February. So, what better way to close out the month than by talking about how to navigate the waters of love when they are stirred up by the storms of money troubles? <laughs> I think that was a Shakespeare line, isn't it? Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. Couples and money expert Olivia Mellon joins us to talk about maintaining money harmony with your schmoopy. We'll also answer your question about how to avoid the common pitfalls around gaining an inheritance. All that and more on this week's episode of Motley Fool Answers. It's time for Answers Answers, and today it comes from Chris. Chris, who writes from Canada, by the way, says, I have a specific question I hope you can help me with. My sister and I have recently, sadly, inherited some money. I am hoping you can provide some tips on common mistakes people make when inheriting money and some advice on how to inherit money well and put it to good use. Uh, Hello, Chris. First of all, we're sorry for you and your sister's loss. Uh, Unfortunately, the loss of a loved one is often accompanied by the need, or at least the perceived need, to make big decisions with an inheritance. Immediately. Uh, immediately. Like right now. Right. Yeah. And so, th- to answer your question, one of the big mistakes people f- make is that they feel like they have this urgency because they come into this big sum of money and they feel they have to make a decision with it. And so, I would caution you and say, relax. There's no need to make a big decision. Often when we lose a loved one, there's there's a lot of grief. There might be some upheaval. There might be some family tension about the inheritance. So, wait until all that subsides before you make a big decision. Uh, now, once you've you feel like you're ready to make some sort of decision. Um, here are the priorities you should consider, and this is, these are priorities we consider if you anyone who's come into money, whether it's inheritance, you sold a business, you lottery, won the lottery, it happens, something I guess. like that, right? So, and this is all the typical boring stuff. But basically, the first thing you want to focus on is getting rid of high interest consumer debt, credit card debt that's charging you like 15, 20 percent. Next thing would be to look at your retirement. Have you saved enough for retirement that you haven't devoted a lot of that to your retirement savings? Next on the priority list would be sort of single, high single digit debt. We're talking like student loan debt, maybe car loans, something like that. If you have kids and you haven't saved enough for college, that would be the next place I look. And then uh, if you've taken care of all of that, you might want to continue. You have a mortgage, you might want to consider something like paying off some of the mortgage. Now, that's all the boring stuff. And I, I do think it's important when you come into money like that. To do something you enjoy, something fun with it. There are guidelines. People will say, like, you set aside 10%, maybe even as high as 20%, to basically spend on something that you enjoy. It could be something like a trip, could be something like new furniture, something like that. But you should give yourself permission to sort of splurge a little bit with it. Um, another thing to consider is what's a way you could spend the money to honor the legacy of the person who left you the money? So it could be donating to a charity that they supported. It could be doing something like funding a genealogy project that you create and then you give copies to everyone else in the family. Maybe you got the money from your parents and when you were younger they took you to on family vacations to a certain place every year, but you've never taken your kids there. So now you have the money to do that. But whatever you do, you don't want to squander the whole thing because that money 
that you inherited, probably those people worked hard to get that money. They took the legal steps necessary to make sure you inherited it. So while it's okay to splurge for some of it, you don't want to squander it. Um, and finally, more boring stuff, and this is tax laws, and I know that you're from Canada, so this doesn't apply to you, but for Americans who inherit money, if you inherit money in a retirement account, an IRA or 401k, you can't just leave it alone until you retire. You actually have to start taking distributions out eventually. So look into those rules. And if you inherit investments outside of a retirement account, you get what is called a stepped-up cost basis. So let's say your dad bought a stock at $10, it grows to 50 it's 50 on the day he dies. Your cost basis is now 50. You could sell that stock and there's no tax consequences whatsoever. So it's actually a good time once you feel like you're ready to look at any inherited investments to make decisions about it because if you sell them relatively soon, you don't have to worry about any of the tax consequences. But bottom line, you don't have to do something right away. That's true. Thanks to Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans for sponsoring today's episode. When it comes to the big decisions of choosing a mortgage lender, it's important to work with someone you can trust and who has your best interests in mind. With Rocket Mortgage, you'll get a transparent online process that gives you the confidence to make an informed decision. Whether you're looking to buy a home or refinance your existing mortgage, you can lift the burden of getting a home loan with Rocket Mortgage. Skip the bank, skip the waiting, and go completely online at quickenloans.com. Equal housing lender licensed in all 50 states. NMLS, consumeraccess.org, number Olivia Mellon joins us today. She's a speaker, author, and money coach in the field of couples communication, stress management, and conflict resolution. Olivia was named Investment Advisors 2013 Top 25. It's a select list of the most influential individuals in and around the advisors business. You were even on Oprah. Is that correct? Oh, many times. Many? I've been on Oprah four times, Today Show 10 times, and 2020 twice. Oh, wow. my God. I, I always say my. 15 minutes of fame has been extended to 45 minutes. (laughs) (laughs) Well, well deserved, and we want to thank you for joining us today. Uh, This month, we've been focusing a bit on love and couples and money. And so today, we're going to focus on uh, what do you do when money kind of turns into a pain point? And you actually have spent your career helping couples work out their money issues? Yes. That's been a very large component of my money work. I was a regular old couples therapist um, before I was a money therapist. And then uh, it turns out that couples and money uh, as a stress point has been on the top two list of marital discontent for the last 20 or 30 years. The other items changes, but money is always the second one or the first one. Several years ago, Wall Street Journal, Journal said it was the first one again. And what brings most couples to you? Like, what are what are they struggling with? Well, you know, I, I've been saying this so long. People call it Mellon's Law. So Mellon's Law of Couples Polarization says if opposites don't attract right off the bat, and they usually do attract right off the bat, then they'll end up opposite eventually anyway. So money is no exception. So usually there's one married to a saver or in a relationship with a saver and one warrior married to an avoider. Those are the top two. And actually, most spenders are avoiders and most savers are warriors. So that double whammy marriage is incredibly common. 
So when people come to you, um, how much of the discussion is actual financial advice? I and mean, when you say to someone like someone who's who is an overspender, and if I understand your history, that's that was your inclination at least way yes, back when. Yes, I'm a recovering overspender. <laughs> right. Do do you get to a point where you tell people some some actual nuts and bolts financial advice? Well, sort of, but before long before that, I teach them tools of good, empathetic, respectful couples communication, and I uh, explore with them what money was like in their childhood to see what loads they're carrying into the present day uh, uh, about their life with money. So they, they don't negotiate with the, each other about the hard facts of their money till they've done some work with me first. Right. So we always talk here on the show that, you know, when you're arguing about money, you're really arguing about deeper values. Exactly. Exactly. I I call it money myths. Money equals love, power, security, control, self-worth, freedom, security in old age, um, self-esteem. You know, if it just was money, dollars and cents, a tool to accomplish some of life's goals, People would not be fighting about it like this. Right, right. So the first step is to help them communicate, to help your couples communicate better and understand where they where they learned how they their relationship with money. What are what are some tips for getting that conversation going? Well, I teach them empathetic communication structures. So they start out with an appreciation of one another, uh, ideally about money. You know, uh, hoarders are money savers secretly admire spenders' ability to be generous, to give, to not worry so much, but they won't tell them that because they're afraid the spender will spend more wildly. And spenders secretly admire hoarders' ability to set priorities, plan, budget, prioritize, even though they spenders hate, hate the word budget. They still respect the discipline that's involved in budgeting. So they won't tell them that because they're afraid the hoarder will rein them in more tightly. But when there's any goodwill in a marriage, and you start telling each other what you secretly envy and appreciate about one another, everybody all of a sudden feels safe enough to admit their own issues and start working on themselves. So I always teach that first, appreciation, the power of appreciation. What do you think is one of some of the biggest mistakes that couples make that kind of gets them to this place where they where they need professional help? Oh, well, first of all, money is still the last taboo. People will talk about anything else first. So not talking about money and not talking about it in a uh, successful, uh, proactive, non-attacking way is the biggest mistake they make. And I also think merging all the money and having money secrets from the past are, are two big no-nos as well. I think all women need some separate money, and I think men like to have a little separate money too. So I, I never, uh, uh, after years of doing this work, I never recommend people merge all their money. Oh, that's interesting. I think I'm fine with their merging some, uh, even most of their money, for joint expenses, joint retirement, and an emergency fund uh, savings, but I want them to keep the rest separate because I think women have psychological need, often unconscious, about having some separate money. 
Well, logistically, that can be difficult in terms of uh, you get to the nuts and bolts of it and like say, okay, we're going to have some separate money, some joint money, but who pays for the groceries and who pays for the mortgage? Well, everybody pays for all of that because that's on the joint list. But the question is, what do you kick into the joint fund? I think you kick in to the joint fund proportional to assets or income. And I think women who stay home um, to watch kids should get a salary from the family for doing that. Because Lord knows it's hard work. Oh, man, it's hard work. (laughs) And you don't get the clock out at 5 o'clock. Society doesn't validate it. At least the family should, you know? Right, right. So that gets to some of the core relationships that we have with money. What about like the little money spats in the day-to-day life that you're not sitting down in front of a professional, but you're just like fuming over something in, in the home? What's the best way to deal with those little, little well, itty-bitty you know, fights? I think my solution about having some separate money uh, will alleviate some of those fights. Because let's say everybody has a hobby that the other one thinks is uh, just, uh, you know, impractical and uh, a money pit. You spend your own separate money on that, and then you don't have to discuss it with your spouse. I mean, you know, I think that's a very good solution for the little niggling things. And also, I think people should have regular money uh, talks once every every other week, once a month at the least, uh, weekly, and they should reward themselves for having these talks if they go well. And what are some of the things that they should cover in this money talk before they get rewarded? Well, I think um, the first thing, for the first money talk, they should talk about how money was handled in their family of origin and what money messages they might be carrying into the present from the past. And then they, I also, I give couples a goal-setting exercise. I have them agree in advance what short-term is going to be, like six months or a year or two to three months, midterm and long-term. And then they go away separately, and they generate lists of financial and other goals. And they do this at least three times to see which items come up again and again which are the items they can trust. And then they share the list and they harmonize the list and they agree to certain ones of the list that are going to be short, medium, and long-term goals. Then they can plan together for how they're going to meet some of their, especially medium and long-term goals. That's very important. So at what point should a couple in their relationship, do they, should they decide that they do need to bring in a professional? Like what's, what I are some signs that you, it's problems too big? You can't come too soon. If you have any conflict over money, you should be seeing a professional who's good at this stuff. Anecdotally, from what I've seen when people, when couples have troubles, a lot of it comes down to focus on, on a certain time horizon where one person really wants to focus on, on making a really good life now, taking good vacations, having a nice house for the kids, all worthy intentions. And the other person is more focused on long-term thinking, yes, but we have to also save for retirement and we have to save for college. How do you get them to meet in the middle somewhere? Well, you know, this empathetic communication exercise that I train people in 
which I bought, borrowed from Harville Hendricks. Uh, it's my version of his mirroring empathetic feedback exercise. Helps people sit in each other's shoes. So once you experience what it's like to be like your partner, and the second step of this exercise is called validation. And after you've played back what the person said as close to verbatim as possible, you say what makes sense about it from their perspective and what else they might also be feeling. When you learn to sit in each other's shoes, and I call it walk a half mile in your partner's moccasin, everything changes and everything is possible. Do you ever have the temptation when you're speaking with a spouse to just say, no, you're absolutely wrong? I mean, something that if they're doing so egregiously bad for well, the couple's you know, finances, I, at what I, point do you I, say, I, no, you're wrong? Well, here, here's the, the secret. You know, first of all, I, my own personal style is a very vulnerable sharing style. So there are no, they know I'm a recovering overspender. They know I'm in uh, a successful marriage for 30 years that wasn't always easy, but now it's really wonderful because we've worked on our communication so hard. So I share a lot from my own experience, but sometimes I have to say to the person, and sometimes I meet with uh, people separately so I don't shame the other person because nobody wants to be the identified patient, you know? Nobody wants that. So I can say to people, um, look, I feel about this that you have more baggage from the past and this is more loaded for you. This other thing, thing is more loaded for your spouse. So I always have to say, have something to say about the spouse so nobody is targeted alone, you know? And also, uh, I give these very powerful self-meditation therapy exercises called a money dialogue and everybody has to do them. And this is writing out a conversation between you and your money about how the relationship is going, making believe that money is a person with whom you've been having a lifelong relationship. So once you write out this first conversation, you have at least three voices in your head comment on the dialogue you just generate. Your mother in your head, your father in your head, your spouse the ex-spouse, the nun at school, the rabbi, and the final voice of the dialogue is God, if you believe in God, higher power, or your voice of inner wisdom. The money dialogue functions like self-therapy about money. So it's amazing what people will come up with. You describe yourself as a recovering overspender. What was it that, that turned your life around? Well, doing this work with others and feeling like I had to walk my talk and ending my first uh, seven-year marriage and knowing we were both slight overspenders and I had credit card debt, my husband was, was the, my present husband, is the sanest person about money I ever met. And he said to me, honey, you should really pay off your credit cards every month. And if you can't, just talk to me about it. He said it in a way that was not shaming and not judgmental, and ever I was ready to hear it. So ever since then, I did that. 
You know, I was ready, you know, the therapist light bulb joke. How many therapists does it take to change your light bulb? Only one, but the, the, the light bulb has to really want to change. <laughs> I know you're a member of the Financial Therapy Association, and I'm actually working on my graduate certificate in financial therapy. And, it, and oh, it's wow. interesting to, to see that it's, it's a relatively new field. Um, totally new. And, yeah. and to a certain degree, it, you, I question why that is, because it's so obvious, really, when you think about it. That, well, because I think therapists were so money, money phobic and money avoiders that they really didn't take it on. You know, I, I, when I started doing this work in 82, I said money was the last taboo. Uh, a friend of mine had said this. We should, he was a lawyer and he was my first partner. He said, let's do public workshops about money because money is the last taboo. It's harder to talk about money than sex or childhood trauma. And I felt like he hit me with a thunderbolt. I said, oh, that is so true. When money comes in therapy, it's like there are ghosts of family members sitting all around the room, my ghosts and the client's ghosts, and absolutely nobody is talking about this. Somebody should create a safe place to talk about this. So that's what we did with Money Harmony Work. Olivia, thank you so much for joining us today. You're welcome. If you, our listeners, want any more advice about maintaining a relationship and money, you can check out her website, moneyharmony.com. Communication is important. But what other factors can serve as a barometer to getting a divorce? Well, we have a Cosmo-esque, probably not that helpful quiz that we're going to take. Outstanding. So, uh, some research out of, researchers out of Emory in 2014 looked at 3,000 ever-married people in the United States, and they came up with the study, A Diamond is Forever and Other Fairy Tales, the relationship between wedding expenses and marriage duration. Wow. So... I have some questions to ask you about your marriage and courtship, your wedding and courtship, and then we're going to figure out who's the most likely and least likely to get divorced. <laughs> it's so dark. <laughs> it's so bad. All right, let's go. The first thing they looked at is how many years did you date before you got engaged? I, I would say, I guess, three. Okay. Yeah. You're asking me? Yeah. I think maybe a year and a half, maybe two. Call it two. Call it two. That's a good idea to call it two. All well, right. Is, is longer better? Is that what you're saying? Well, well hold like on, it. hold we'll, on. We'll find out, yeah. Okay, so they looked at the reference point of dating for less than one year, and they found that if you dated one to two years, you were 20% less likely to get divorced. And if you had been dating for three plus years, you were 39% less likely to get divorced. Good so, news, good news. All right, so Allison and Bro, we get 39% in our favor. And... Rick gets 20. Next question. Did looks or wealth matter when you got married? So did you care that your partner looked handsome, beautiful, or were wealthy? Well, neither of us were wealthy, so I guess it had to be our outstanding looks. No, in your partner. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I'm with bro on that. (laughs) He looks beautiful. (laughs) Thank you. I married an architect, so that tells you how much wealth mattered to me. (laughs) Just about as much as my, uh, you know, preschool music teacher. <laughs> just about, just about. All right. So, using the reference point of neither partner's looks nor wealth are important, 
They found that you're 18% more likely to get divorced if wealth was important. Mm. And you're 40% more likely to get divorced if looks are important. Because we all know which way looks go. (laughs) Downhill. (laughs) Except for you two, of course. All right, next question. How big was your wedding? By which I mean how many people attended it? I'm going to say about 100, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Is that big? It sounds a lot like I married bro, because I think we were right around 100 also. Well, you we are, seem to be answering the questions. You are a handsome man, I have to say. Yeah, we had about 100, too. So apparently we all had the same wedding. But we were here. very, very low budget. Everything DIY. All right, hold on. That's we'll get to that. The, we'll get to one. that. All right, so they looked at, um, they asked, how big was your wedding? And they using the reference point of the only couple. So there you are, standing at the Justice of the Peace. If you had... One to ten people at your wedding, you are 35% less likely to get divorced. Eleven to fifty people, 56% less likely. Uh, For us, we are in the 100 to 200 range. We are 84% less likely to get divorced than people who are, it was the only couple. So a bigger wedding is better. Having more people is better. Okay. All right, let's move on to how much did you spend at your wedding. So, how much do you think you spent? Well, this will give you an idea. I wrote an article about our wedding, and I entitled it "My Big Fat Cheap Wedding." So I think we spent about eight to nine thousand dollars. Oh, okay. All right. That was the reference point. So okay. Yeah. How about you? Once again, I married bro. (laughs) I I think ours was actually cheaper, even. Did you Did you also have square dancing at your wedding? Because that's what we had at our wedding. No, we had an open mic. Okay. (laughs) So did we after the square dancing? We did. We must have gotten married. You look familiar. Uh, so maybe one to five K for your wedding. Sure. All right. What about you? Oh, we spent over thirty thousand dollars. Oh my goodness gracious! We had a big, we had a big, uh, expensive wedding, and it was the best day ever. I'm sure. By the way, I'm sure it was. Yeah, we did not have a cheap wedding. So, uh, using the reference point of five to ten thousand, it sounds like Rick, you were maybe one to five thousand. Yeah, something in there. So you are 18% less likely to get divorced. Bro, you're the reference point. Whereas us and how much we spent, Ron and I spent at our wedding, we are 46% more likely to get divorced. Wow. So that one maybe sunk us. All right, last question. Did you go on a honeymoon? Uh, I was hired by The Motley Fool a month before my wedding, so I did not feel comfortable going on a huge honeymoon. So we went on a hike the next day and we called it our mini moon. And then the following summer, we went on a real one. We called that our Maxi Moon. Oh, okay. So I'd say we did. Yeah. Um, but it just was not your traditional one. Yeah. Rick? Scotland. Oh. Nice. Oh, it was It was nice. We had lots of everybody. <laughs> You're like, and my <laughs> Scottish accent is done. That's it. It's done. <laughs> I'm done. <laughs> it was f***ing brilliant, all right? <laughs> um, <laughs> One thing I'll say, if you ever go have a honeymoon in Scotland, make sure you tell everybody that you're there on your honeymoon because they'll all buy you whiskey. Oh, that's sweet. Uh, We did a honeymoon. We did uh, just a short little one to Bermuda. So, yeah. So, congratulations to all of us for going on a honeymoon because that makes us 41% less likely to get divorced than those who who didn't go on a honeymoon. Nice. So, the bottom line is, have a huge wedding, have a lot of people, but don't spend a lot of money. Don't worry about looks or wealth. Spend a lot of time dating before you get engaged. And of course, go on a honeymoon. Of course. Of course. Um, my, parents, I don't know. my parents went on a honeymoon to Bermuda, by the way. Yeah. They it's got, nice. They, they got divorced. Oh. Oh, man. 
<laughs> Bro just mooned his honey. <laughs> <laughs> he would. Uh, it's really easy to get from you. It's like a direct flight from National. Yeah. It's awesome. I highly recommend it. Uh, all right, so I was going to like try to do the math on this, but then I just got bored with that. So you know what? I think all three of us are in pretty sound, good marriages, and so I'm not worried about any of us getting divorced anytime I soon. I think so. I think you're right. Well, that's the show. It is edited profanely. Rick dropped an F-bomb in today's episode in front of Bro's daughter. <laughs> I was quoting Scotsman. <laughs> Our email is answers at fool.com. For Robert Brokamp, I'm Allison Southwick. Stay foolish, everybody. Bye.